Yeah. What's going on, everybody? Um, I want to uh, just introduce myself. My name is Tony Sorcy. I'm the campus pastor here. I do that just because I met uh, a couple people this morning I'd never met before. And uh, just new people are always coming uh, to our campus. And oftentimes I don't get a chance to, uh, to meet you, shake your hand. That's my desire. I'd love that. If you can afford me that opportunity, I'd love it. Um, and so I just know we always have a lot of people coming and checking us out. And uh, so good to have you. So good to have you in our midst. We are doing a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're in Exodus 20. So uh, go ahead and get there. Um, if you're using um, any kind of like phone or tablet, whatever, if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn to Exodus 20. Um, so we are in a series on the Ten Commandments. First service, we had to cut a little bit short because we had our annual business uh, meeting. And let me tell you, it got crazy at the business meeting. You guys uh, missed out. You guys missed out. Bob was like talking about numbers and we were like boating and there's like people's hands raised and stuff like that. It was, it was a crazy, crazy time. I'm, I'm trying to make it funny. None of you are laughing. And um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just stop right now. So Exodus 20, go ahead. We're going to read the first six verses. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We're going, to show in the, we're going to show in the message today that implied here is a therefore. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've done that. That's who I am. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Second one. This is where we're going to be today. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and kept my commandments. God, this is your word. You have spoken. You've spoken to us. Just as we see here in verse, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. God, thank you for a revealed religion. We have not discovered this. We've not made this up, but you spoke into human history. We recorded your words. We have your words so that we might know you as you've revealed yourself. And so important it is to the worship of you and the following you and the loving you and the obeying of you that we do that according to the truth. And that is, that is at the heart. That's one of the reasons why you tell us to not make gods, not make idols, and to worship you in fidelity. I pray for myself and for my friends. God, help me to make good sense out of the text um, as I've studied, as your, as your spirit has led and guided me um, this week. And um, I pray that you would empower me to speak these words and empower my friends to understand the truth of your word and help us to understand that you are a God of grace that calls us um, to live free because you have set us free. And um, I'm thankful for your word and for this moment. And I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the second commandment, I want to touch on something that Steve mentioned last week, but I believe that we need to constantly, constantly remind ourselves of. Even after saying it this one time, it's not going to be sufficient enough. This is something that we need to remind ourselves constantly as we come to the scriptures, especially those moments where God is calling us as a people to obey. And it's very, very foundational for our study in the Ten Commandments. So Steve touched on it last week. I want to kind of mention it again and kind of expound on it because it is so important. So before we come to the very, very first command, which is in verse 3, have no other gods before me. And we're going to see a little bit of a bleed over today um, into uh, the second commandment. The second commandment is kind of a, an articulation or an expression of the first. Uh, before the very first commandment, we, we read these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Know this. Write this down. Exodus comes before Sinai. Exodus comes before Sinai. Sinai is the mountain where, where God gave uh, Moses, his servant, uh, a bit of a mediator uh, um, uh, between God and, and his people. Mount Sinai is the mountain where God gave these Ten Commandments. This is the context. This is where Moses is. He, he's, he's, he's communicating with God. God is expressing these commandments, this expression of what it means to know and love God. Exodus is that moment where God brought his people out of slavery. 
He brought them out of bondage. He brought them out of slavery. And he brought them into freedom. Exodus, released from slavery, released from bondage, into freedom, comes before Sinai. Law. Obey. Redemption always precedes obedience. Love always precedes action on our part. God's action always precedes anything that he has called us to do. So God chose Israel to be his possession, to be his people, and he has acted on their behalf. In history, he has come and entered into the historical situation, what they were experiencing, and he has acted on their behalf to rescue them and redeem them by bringing them out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt and into freedom. That event is called the Exodus. And God wiped out their enemies and he crushed the, their oppressors and he brought them into a loving covenantal relationship with a loving God who desires for his people to be free. And so God initiated these people by redeeming them and he declares himself to be their redeemer. Notice, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. This is personal. I am your God. You are my people. He brings them out of slavery and bondage. He initiates them by doing that. He redeems them and declares himself to be their redeemer. And God now calls Israel, he calls his people to respond to that redemption, to respond to that loving act, to respond to that freedom, to that release from slavery. God's action toward us in history always precedes our action. God's action in history always precedes our action. And it's true in the Exodus. We see the pattern here. We see the pattern. Some people think that Old Testament's about law and New Testament's about grace. But we see this God acts, we respond. We see this God shows us grace, we respond. We see this pattern all throughout the scriptures. It's not just the New Testament. And we see the Exodus here is a little bit of a, a shadow, a little bit of a, a pointing finger toward Christ. So in Exodus, God acts historically on behalf of his people to rescue them and, call, and then calls them to respond to him in love, worship, obedience, and fidelity. And that, that's the first two commandments. Have no other gods before me. Make no idols and worship me alone. Okay? I've just brought you out of slavery. I've just loved you. I've just acted on your behalf. I've set you free. Now I want you to live free. Now I want you to live in the context of this loving relationship, this free relationship where I seek your freedom and not your slavery. I love you. I love you. And I want you to be free. They've been set free and now God wants them to live free. And the Ten Commandments describe what living free looks like. The Ten Commandments are, are the articulation of what living free in the midst of a world riddled with idols, in the world filled with uh, uh, points of slavery and bondage, God's describing to them what it means and what it looks like to live free. And we see the same God acts, we respond phenomena is carried over into the New Testament as well. God's redemption of a people out of slavery in Egypt is a shadow of a greater redemption that is to come. Exodus, the moment where God wipes out their enemies, brings them into a loving relationship, releases them from slavery and bondage, is a huge neon flashing arrow that points towards a coming redeemer who will do this for us ultimately, and that's Christ. Exodus is a shadow of Christ's redemption. Jesus, the, the substance of this shadow belongs to him. And so we see this. It's a shadow of a redemption that's to come. It's a huge flashing neon arrow that points to Christ. That moment where God redeemed us when he crushed his son on a cross in our place to release us from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And just like God's people in Exodus had an enemy and had an oppressor, so we too today have enemies and oppressors. Our great enemy, Satan. Sin and its implications and its consequences. Death, namely. And Jesus comes to rescue us, to bring us out of the bondage of the consequence of our sin. And he's done that for us fully and finally and judicially and legally for us in Christ. And so Exodus is a picture 
of that. And we see this, God acts, we respond. This is the context of these Ten Commandments. It is the context of the law. We see that God begins this pattern in the Old Testament, carries out into the New Testament, and it is no different for Exodus 20 than it is for those who trust in Jesus Christ. God acts historically on behalf of rebel sinners. God acts historically on behalf of rebel sinner campus pastors who break commandments and love lesser things, lesser gods, who makes uh, idols and worships them. God acts on behalf of a people like that and rescues them from their bondage. And God did this for us in Christ. This is how I spent most of my life. I spent most of my life up until 20 years old just breaking commandments. Like that's what my life was about, breaking commandments, okay? And God shows his love for us in this, that he sent his son to die for rebel sinners who break commandments, make other gods and put other gods before him. This is God's grace and this is God's love. So God's rescue comes before our worship of him. God's love for us, acted out historically, comes before our love for him. Grace comes before obedience. Exodus comes before Sinai. Are you seeing this? Please see this. Because some would say Old Testament law, right? And New Testament, we see grace. No, we see this redemption response here in Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, therefore. Have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Worship me alone. Why? Because I've just brought you out of slavery. Don't run back into slavery. I've just rescued you. Don't run back into bondage. I've made a covenant relationship with you. I promise to love you and show fidelity to you. Don't chase after lesser gods who are not about your freedom. They're about your bondage and about your slavery. Right? We need to see that in the Ten Commandments, God is not a cosmic killjoy that wants to ruin your life. He is a God who indeed wants to give you true life, true freedom. And in his redemption, he's showing you your grace before you even acted to deserve it. And he is showing you now in the Ten Commandments, he's showing us us what living free looks like. And so some think that this is how Christianity works. And some think that this is the story of the Bible. And please hear me. Please hear me. Some think that religion and Christianity is like this. If I obey, then God will love me. If I obey, keep commandments, do all this stuff, then after I've done that, God will love me. And in the cross and in Exodus, we see that, no, it's God loves me, therefore I obey. God's love comes first before our obedience. His call for us to show fidelity to him and to worship him and to obey him is a response to an amazing grace and love that he has shown. And we need to see the law in this light. The God acts, we respond. In the context of a covenant, loving relationship where God desires our freedom, he sets us free and desires that we live free. Or else... The Ten Commandments and God's call for us to obey will become for us a new form of slavery. God's just brought his people out of slavery. Do you think that he wants to subject them again to a different form of slavery? No. This is freedom. This is life to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. God just brought them out of slavery, friends. He doesn't want to put them back into slavery. And some view the law as a new form of slavery. And if we miss out that God's love comes first, gospel comes first, cross comes first, God's redemption comes first before he even calls us to do anything, the law will be to us a brutal taskmaster that we can never, ever fulfill. When the truth of the gospel is that Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf and die on a cross for commandment breakers. That's how God has loved us. And he's called us now to live in response to that. God has just brought his people out of slavery. He's not interested in bringing them into a new form of it. J.A. Montier says this. He says, the law of God is not a system of merit whereby the unsaved seek to earn divine favor, but a pattern of life given by the redeemer to the redeemed so that they might know how to live for his good pleasure. Set free to live free. And you need to have a gospel lens. You need to have a grace lens when it comes to obedience or you're going to be running a rat race. 
you're going to be running a rat race. You're going to be thinking that God's preparing you to take the place of his son, a perfect, sinless person who just obeys commandments all the time and never sins, and that's never going to happen. God shows his love for us in this, and that he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still commandment breakers. And he calls us in response to that love to obey and love him, okay? Exodus comes before Sinai, and that is the context. That is the context. You just jump into 20, and you're like, oh, here's a bunch of rules that we got to keep, right? No, 19 chapters before 20 of what? God showing his amazing grace and redemption to a people who don't deserve it. And now he's calling them to live free because they've been set free. So please, every week you come in here and hear law. We're going to do our best to remind us of that. But you need to come in and see that before a single commandment was spoken of the ten, God says, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you. Therefore, this is what life looks like now. So second commandment is twofold. First is this. Don't make idols. Second one, don't worship idols. Don't make idols. Don't worship idols. We touched on this last week, but we're going to bring it out in a little bit of a fuller way, a little bit of a bleed over here. Don't put any other gods before me. And now, uh, second commandment's a bit of an articulation of the first. So God gives the commandment here in the negative, right? Don't make any idols and don't worship them. If, you would, if, if we were to interpret this in the positive, it would, it would mean this. Worship the right God rightly. Worship the right God rightly. And so we see now that God is zealous and jealous that we really truly get a sense and a glimpse of his glory and that we worship him rightly according to the truth of who he is. Worship the right God rightly. So first one, don't make idols. We'll take it in in, in two parts. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. First thing that we need to see, like Steve uh, just beautifully explained to us last week, is that idolatry is not a problem just for ancient Near East Old Testament folks, but for 2014 Northwest Indiana folks, okay? It's not just an issue for primitive people. It's an issue for us today, all right? Now, they express their idolatry in a little bit of a different way, We express ours in an altogether different way. The sin that is at the core, the dysfunction that is at the core is still the same. It's still the same. So we talked about this a little bit last week, but let's revisit it. Now, God is telling us here not to make for ourselves any carved image. Don't make a God. Don't make an idol. Don't take from something that's already been created and create a God and worship it as if it's the creator. There's only one God in this world, and he's the creator. Everything else besides him is a created thing. There's only one God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God who's speaking at the beginning of Exodus 20 here. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Everything else outside of God is a created thing. Everything else outside of God is a created thing. There's only one creator. Everything else is creation. Here's what idolatry does. It flip-flops God's created design. And instead of worshiping the creator, we worship created things. And this is exactly at the heart of Adam and Eve's sin in the Old Testament. God created Adam and Eve to have a fidelity and a loving relationship with him, created by God and for God. And what they do? They said, you know what, God? No thanks. We're going to live life on our own terms. We're going to remove you from your place of authority and kingship. We're going to place ourselves on the throne. And we're going to live life not how you think that we should live it, but how we think that we should live it. And what they did in that moment is they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they rejected the kingship and the leadership and the ruling of God in their lives. And that ruling and that leadership and that kingship was a loving kingship. He intended for them good. And they believed the lie that God was holding back. God was holding back. Eat of the fruit of the tree, Eve, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. God's holding back on you. There's something good. There's something good in this world to be had, and God is holding back. And we see a subtle shift away from creator to creation. Shifting away from loving God and seeking in him joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and identity and a shift away from God over to a created thing to provide what only God was only ever intended to provide. This is idolatry. This is misplaced worship. This is worship dysfunction is what we see there. 
So from the beginning, God originally created us for the purpose of worshiping and serving God and God alone and to rule over, over other created things in this world. We're to love and worship God alone and to appropriately delight in and participate in lower creation, other things that he has created. In a sinful twist, we turn away from our creator just as our first parents did. We do the same. We turn away from our creator and instead of trusting him and showing fidelity to him and he's our object of worship, our faces to him, we do is we shift away from creator and we shift to creation. And the things that we were intended to rule over now rule over us because that which you worship will rule you and dominate you and control your life. That which you worship rules over you. And Paul explains this idolatry phenomenon well in Romans 1. We're well past Exodus 20 here and the fashioning of wooden idols covered in metal. Right? Paul here in Romans 1. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged that. No thanks God, we're going to exchange that for something created. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And Paul goes on to say, who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry happens. We break commandments one and two when we turn from creator and towards creation. And idolatry is the drift away from worship and fidelity of God to worship and fidelity to created things. Now, it's interesting. He says, do not make for yourself an idol. Don't make for yourself an idol. Some of you know the King James language here. It says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, um, which is why we use the ESV, just because it talks like we talk, and it just makes more sense. Um, and so uh, thank you, ESV, uh, for uh, writing the Bible in, uh, in our updated language. Uh, but we have that here, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The Hebrew means something hacked, something chiseled. Picture hammer, chisel, taking a chunk of wood and forming and shaping a God out of something created. And this is not God doing the chiseling. This is man doing the chiseling. Man is creating a God. And so in primitive times, they would take a chunk of wood, they'd fashion it, they'd shape it, and they'd take metal coverings, they'd take thin kind of like sheet metal a bit, and they'd cover it in something fancy, glossy, shiny to make it appear beautiful, to make it appear as something that has excellence and beauty. And so we see that this is the kind of idolatry that God's people were engaged in here at this time. Now, we don't have to worry about that today, right? Right? None of you guys, I'm not fearful. Like, I'm not your accountability partner. I don't got to call you up at 4 p.m. today and be like, hey, dude, you grabbing your kids and making idols in the backyard? Are you doing that? Do we need to bring the elders over? Right? Like, man, I was making an idol and my tree crashed at my neighbor's house. And man, this is a mess, you know? Like, idolatry. Yes, God, it's not good. Right? I don't have to worry about you guys doing this, right? Chiseling out of wood something, dipping it in metal, Right, putting it up in your backyard, candles, services toward it, right? Songs, you're grabbing your kids' hands, we're singing songs to graven image in the backyard. We don't have to worry about that, right? We don't have to worry about that. What we need to see is that in the New Testament, God connects our basic human desires to that of idolatry. Paul says this don't covet. Don't lust, don't yearn, don't long for something. Why? Because that's idolatry. And I, at, the, at the root and at the base of idolatry is not so much an image or a created thing, but our heart's attachment and trust in a created thing. The issue really is our heart. The issue is really our heart. Which we'll go on to the next point here. Don't make an idol and don't worship because in the worshiping, in the trusting in the created thing, what we do is we might not have a hammer and a chisel, but in the trusting and the worshiping of a created thing, we create idols. So think less hammer, think more heart, okay? Think less chisel, think more covetousness. Think more desire. Think more belief, trust in something that's created. An idol is made by our worship. An idol is created by our worship. So he says, don't make idols, and don't worship idols. And in the worshiping, we create. You guys see the connection there? So he says here, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So here, check it out. On one hand, 
idols are really nothing. They're nothing at all. Okay? They're no gods at all. They're impotent. They're lifeless. There's really no power in these idols at all. Why? Because there's one true God, and he's creator. Everything else is creation. So on one hand, idols are nothing. God, prophets, they just mock idols throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you guys know, I think it's uh, Elisha is pitting uh, his God, the God of uh, the Bible, the God of uh, the Israelites, um, up against all these other pagan gods. And it's just Elisha, he's by himself. And here's all these other people that kind of are for these other gods. And we're going to have a little bit of a test. And everything that Elisha asks of God, God accomplishes and God does. While these guys over here, they can't get their God to do anything. And Elisha says something similar to this. What's the problem, guys? Is your God going to the bathroom? He's taking a leak, a little bit busy right now. And that might seem crass, but that's how the prophets mocked Old Testament idols. God mocks them. They have eyes. They don't see. They have hands. They can't reach. They can't do anything. They have feet. They stand still. They can't walk. They can't go anywhere. They can't move. And so we see prophets and God mock idols. On the other hand, we also see some warnings about idols. What's our first two commandments here? No other gods before me. Don't make an idol. Don't worship it. So on one hand, it's nothing, it's mockable, it's laughable, it's ridiculous. But on the other hand, we see throughout the testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament, warnings against idols. What were John's last words of the letter of 1 John? Little children, keep yourself from idols. So on the one hand, we see that they're, they're powerful. There's something to them. And God warns us, where does the power of an idol come from? Where does the power of an idol to rule in a person's life, to command obedience in a person's life, to dominate a person's life when it's lifeless? Where does the power of an idol come from? Idols are powerful and rule us to the degree that our hearts attach themselves to them. The power of the idol is made and seen in our worship in our heart's attachment to these created things, to the degree that our hearts trust them, believe them, serve them, give ourselves to them, and allow them to dominate and rule our lives. And that's why God says, do not make for yourselves an idol. Think heart, not hammer. Think heart, think trust, think worship. Now, let's talk about worship. Two words that give shape to our view of glory and this idea of glorify. Okay, we're talking about worship here. Two words, one Old Testament, one New Testament. Write these down. The first is this, wait, wait. It's the Hebrew word kabod. The second is excellence, and it's the Greek word doxa. When we put wait and excellence together, we have a good comprehensive idea of what glory means and what it means to worship something, all right? So we're talking about worship here. A little bit of a heart check. Let's define worship. Because I could say worship and someone can think of some Chris Tomlin CD or something. Or they think of the 30 minutes that we just spent, right, uh, singing songs. Worship is more comprehensive than that. Worship has to do with our hearts and the continuous outpouring of our hearts. It's more of a street-level term here that we're we're kind of trying to uh, come up with. So weight and, 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 and excellence, okay? Now, weight has to do with importance, prominence, power. When someone says that a matter is weighty, what are they saying there? They're saying that a matter is, a matter is so important that, it's, that it demands our prioritization. It demands our attention. People who carry weight politically or in our companies or in our families or in our communities, someone who carries weight is someone who has the power to influence, influence a decision. They're respected. You ever heard of that? He's a fat cat or they pull a lot of weight. What are we doing? We're ascribing power and influence to that person. And we use those kinds of terms today, right? Or he's a heavy hitter. You might use that term of maybe a boxer, um, maybe some guy in MMA. And I don't know if anybody watches boxing anymore, but um, right, he's a heavy hitter. Or we might use that of a slugger, right? A guy that can just crank home runs. We use this idea of weight, importance, power, prominence. The next word is this, excellence, doxa. It has to do with beauty, brilliance. 
something that shines brilliantly bright, something that inspires awe or awesome. We'll use this word awesome. We just flippantly use that word. Something that truly inspires awe. Its beauty draws you in. Its attractiveness draws you in. There's something about it that you're drawn to, to give yourself to it, to turn and look toward it and give yourself. And when we put these two things together, we see that to worship means to ascribe weight, power, prominence, influence, authority, and something that is beautiful excellence or that we're ascribing beauty to. Now, God is powerful and beautiful in and of himself. He is this infinitely, and he is this perfectly. We break commandments one and two when we ascribe power and beauty to anything other than God. When something else is weighty and excellent to the degree that we prioritize it, that it has an influence in our lives, that we're drawn to it and attracted to it, and we give ourselves over to it. We give it a level of attention and affection that only God deserves. And Steve rightfully pointed out last week that oftentimes our idols are good things, good things that we've turned into God things, good things that we've turned into God things. And in a dysfunction of our worship, our hearts attach themselves and give ourselves over to a created thing instead of the creator. So are you seeing this here? We need a little bit more of a, we need, need a little more of a robust view of worship. Power, influence, prominence, beauty. I'm drawn to it. I give attention to it. I give my time, talent, treasure, energy, money. I talk about it. I tell others about it. I engage in conversation about it. It dominates my life. It's weighty. It's important. And it has influence in my life. Worship has to do with basic human desires, basic human actions, basic human offerings. And an idol is when those things who, that are inherent in us has its object in a created thing instead of the creator. Harold Best says this, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. Think worship, less Chris Tomlin, more Harold Best, continuous outpouring. Our hearts rage to believe, trust, and attach themselves to something. And the question is this. It's not whether we worship, it's who or what do you worship. It's not do you worship. No, we do. Even the most atheistic, humanistic person in this room They wouldn't consider themselves spiritual or religious at all. They themselves in their lives have something that they give themselves to, that they, that they, that their hearts attach itself to. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to go to church to be a worshiper. We worship. The question is this, what's your object? Who's your object? What are you giving yourself to? A continuous outpouring. We also get a couple of other clues here. He says in the passage, um, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Bow down is submission, serve. We get that idea. Bow down has to do with submission. Now, a lot of times we think of bow down, it's just a posture. We're on our knees, head is bowed, arms up like this. Bow down has to do with submission. What are you submitting to? What are you listening to? Whose voice are you obeying? What's driving you? Who is speaking into your life and you are obeying and believing that voice? Sprite. What was Sprite's uh, slogan for a long time? Obey your what? Thirst. Obey your thirst. Listen to yourself. Obey yourself. Follow that voice. And I would tell you that we have a number of things in our culture that are vying for our attention, that are calling out to us, that are promising us things. And we are in an effort of idolatry, we are believing and submitting to these things. I'm in single hell, so I need Christian mingle and I need a man. I'm in car hell. I need a functional savior to come bring me out of my car hell. I need a mid-sized sedan, 2014 with 0% interest with navigation. That's going to rescue me out of my car hell and bring me into the glorious heavens of significance and value and worth. And you can go on and on and on and on and on. And we really come to see that this idolatry thing is a little bit more pervasive and it's a little bit more real and up close than what we originally thought. That's not just for primitive folks. 
So submission, bow down, give yourself to. Service, time spent. What do you sweat over? What do you work for? What do you give your time to? Where's your money effortlessly flow? I know we talked about these things last week, but God's word is bringing it to us again. So I hope you get a sense of what idolatry is biblically here. And I will tell you this, that for me and my life, when I, when I began to really kind of grab, grapple with this idea of idolatry, it was for me very formational. Here, I'm going to tell you why. A lot of times we have a very shallow view of sin, which mostly deals with sin on the surface level, mostly behavior. Idolatry asks this question, what's at the root? What's at the core? What's at the bottom? What are you loving? What are you believing? What are you submitting to? So oftentimes what I found in my own life, that my desire and thirst for control and power often would lead me to being impatient and angry and short with people. And when I'm over here dealing with a shallow view of sin, I'm just reminding myself of a bunch of verses on anger and a bunch of verses on impatience and a bunch of verses on speaking the truth in love. I'm dealing with my sin on the surface. But when we come to see that idolatry, which is a deeper view of sin, it goes to the heart level, we can come to see why we're truly, truly acting that way. And so for me, this idea of idolatry was hugely uh, formational for me. Because I began to repent, not just of my surface sins, but of my heart sins, of my idol sins. I'm like, God, I'm making myself to be God. I'm acting as if my will needs to be done in this situation. And and, and life is not going according to my plan and my sovereignty. And I'm acting out in anger. And I repent not just of my anger, but of my misplaced worship, thinking that I'm God and I need to be served. Do you guys see that? Is that helpful to you? A lot of times we just deal with our sin on the surface. And what's raging at the core of that is a misplaced trust, a misplaced uh, worship. Oftentimes it's a lie that's believed and it's causing us to act in these ways. And so for me, um, it was very, very formational. So I would encourage you. And if you want to come to me and you want to study this a little bit more, I got articles upon articles, upon books, upon books. If you're a nerd, I got real thick books. If you're kind of like me, like never read a book even in high school, I got small books with like pictures in them. Okay, I got those kind of books too. And I can, I can, I can give you some more resources on this because this was very, very formational for me. And I started to see just a lot of transformation in my heart. And I started to see some of the lies that I was believing. And I would say this. Just ask God, God, do your work in me. Expose me. God, I've been just kind of functioning on the surface here with my sins, seemingly just getting frustrated and getting nowhere, trying to overcome these things that I'm always seeing. Expose in me a dysfunction in my worship. What lie am I believing? What thing that's created am I trusting? Am I worshiping that's causing me to do this? And ask God to do that sanctifying work. Invite him into your life to do that. And watch and see God answer that prayer. And maybe you're going to come into a season of real formation and real growth where you come to worship Jesus at the heart. Um, so I just going to invite you to do that. Okay, so that's, we had to deal with that on this commandment. So 15 minutes left before um, we get out of here. Four reasons why God calls us not to make idols and not to worship them. Four reasons. First one is this, slavery freedom. Going back to the slavery freedom thing. The first is this, slavery freedom. God has just brought his people out of slavery and into freedom. And what he is doing is he is in fact telling them this, I have just rescued you into a loving relationship where I love you and I'm about your life and your flourishing and your joy and your freedom. Do not make for yourself a God and do not worship it because that is running back into slavery. So at the heart of God saying, don't make for yourself another God and don't worship that God is the fact that to do that would be running back into slavery of which God just rescued his people. God loves you. And wants you to live in the joy and the freedom of a relationship with him. And his commands, again, it's not cosmic killjoy God who's not letting me have fun and not letting me worship created things and not letting me trust in alcohol and bank accounts and husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and cars and houses and TV shows and movie stars. 
geez, God, you're a cosmic killjoy. You really hate me. No, he loves you. And he's trying to keep you from the pain of loving gods that are relentless and will never deliver on their promises. All right? Now, parents, young kids, get out of the car, go into Target, right? Um, Because Target's awesome. And that's where all good date nights after you're 30 end up at Target. (laughs) And so you got your kids. And here's what they want to do. They want to get out of the van and just run nuts in the parking lot. They want to just get out and just go and run. And what are you doing if you're a parent, right? Three kids. For me, it's about to be four. What are you doing? You're like, whoa, like, freak out, stay here, grab my hand. And a lot of times what we'll see is, especially in young kids, I'm grabbing their hand. I'm like, you got to hold my hand. Ugh. Right? i got to hold your hand. They're always pushing back on that. They're not like, their hand's not like open to receive my hand. It's like crushed in my hand like this. I'm like holding it. And they're like trying to pull away from that. That to my kids is a law. And they think that I'm, man, you're, you, dad, you're keeping me from being free. You're keeping me from being free to romp around this parking lot. Be free and spread my wings. Well, yeah, because if you do that, you're going to get crushed by a truck. And they see it as law and overbearance, but they have no idea that, a, that their dad who loves them desperately is grabbing their hand as them protecting them from the pain of running off and doing whatever they want. Sometimes we think that freedom means to do whatever the heck we want. That we just break commandments, give our hearts over to everything and anything that we want. Being free means do whatever I want. Being free biblically means set free from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death to worship God who you were created for. And your life is frustrating and your life is terrible because you're giving yourself over to gods who are never, ever going to deliver. And you're believing promises that are never going to come to fruition. And you find yourself giving yourself over and over and over and serving and serving and serving and giving and giving and giving and sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing to a God that's never, ever going to deliver. And so you find yourself just wiped out and broken and lost and destitute. Jeremiah says it in his passage on idolatry. You're like a shrub in the desert and no water's coming anytime soon. God loves you. He has shown that love in your life historically in redeeming you and setting you free. And then now in these commandments, now in this life, he is giving us the particulars of what life looks like now of those who have been set free to live free. Please see the heart of love behind these commandments. Please see the heart of freedom behind these commandments. Or it will be to you another form of slavery. It will be to you a thing that just rules over you. Don't look at it like that. God has just brought his people out of slavery and into freedom. He is is keeping them from running back into slavery. And God's law is freedom if we view it rightly. Second one is this, God's jealousy for his own glory. God's zeal for his own glory. He says this, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, some have interpreted this as God is jealous for us. God is jealous for us to worship him. No, that is not the right way to view this passage. It's more that God is jealous and zealous for his own glory. He wants his glory to be revealed. He wants his glory to be seen. He wants his glory to be loved, bathed in, soaked in, and worshiped. God is not so much jealous for us to worship him as he is zealous for his own glory to be displayed and loved and appreciated. So verses 5 and 6 explain that. The Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. Jealous might be better translated zealous. Don't think high school guy, pimples on his face, jealous that the girl got away and some other dude got her. All right? Don't think that. Don't think insecure God who can't, you know, he's just kind of, kind of that. God is glorious. He is weighty and excellent to the infinite degree. And for us to be about anything less than God is for us to be about pseudo failing, impotent gods. And for God to be about anything less than his own glory is for God to be about something less than himself. So at the center of all God's works, at the center of all that God does is his own glory. We are not at the center of God's plan. We are not the apple of God's eye. God is about his own glory, about his own glory being revealed 
about his own glory being um, experienced and worshipped and understood. And he loves us in the process. God would be um, this tyrannical kind of monster that's, you know, just big-headed and about himself. We usually kind of throw those things around. Well, that would be one thing if God hoarded that for himself. It would be one thing if God was great and didn't, and didn't give of himself. But what we see is a great God who's infinitely weighty and excellent, and he gives of himself. He shares his glory. He comes and, and, and loves us. He, he, he comes and reveals that to us and, call, and, and calls us to come in and see and know me. So he's zealous and jealous for his own glory. God desires that we be about him because he's the only one worthy of that attention and affection. A continuous outpouring of anything else would be less, would be settling for less than God. God's passionate about his own glory, therefore we ought to be zealous for him. First commandment, he will not share his glory, no other gods. Second commandment, he will not allow his glory to be diminished. Worship only me. Second one, third one rather, God is the spirit. Why don't we make created things, shape things, fashion things, chisel things that represent anything in heaven and on earth? Even representations of God. Why, do, why, why don't we do that? Why don't we make things that we can kind of see and give shape so that it might represent God and so that we might worship. What's so wrong with that? Well, God's the spirit. And what that means is John four twenty four. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We don't make physical objects or shapes of God because God doesn't have physical shape. He doesn't have boundaries. He doesn't have a physical shape that we might see or sense him. And so any effort that is for us to create some sort of drawing or picture or image of who God is, is a misrepresentation of him. It's not who he is. And God desires that we worship him in the truth, that we worship God according to the truth of who he is. And if the object of our worship is something that has spatial boundaries or something that's physical right in front of us, that's wrong on two levels. A, God's not like that. And B, that's not the truth. I want you to worship me in truth. Now, this whole section on anthropomorphism, which is really nerdy. We're just going to skip over that. That's when God ascribes human attributes to himself so that he might reveal himself to us. So when he talks about God having a hand, God doesn't have a hand. He's trying to explain to us God's scope and God's, God's scope of ministry and work in our lives. When it says that God see or God's eye, God doesn't have an eye. It's just to say that he sees us. He knows us. He's involved. He's omniscient. So to apply spatial boundaries and give shape to who God is would be a misrepresentation of him. Now, how is God typically represented? How, how, how is God typically represented, right? As a old man in the sky, right? How many of you guys watch Simpsons? Some of you guys are like, man, should I raise my hand? I don't know, this is church, right? How, when God shows up at the Simpsons, how does he show up? He's got some first century sandals on. He's really tall. He's got a white flowing robe, huge white beard, right? God's an old man in the sky. Is God old? Is God old? You know why we grow old? Because of sin. We grow old because of sin. Our bodies decay and break down because of sin. That's the wages of sin. God's never sinned. Just because God's eternal doesn't mean he's old, right? So don't think God's old. And so it's always this depiction. And here's the danger of bringing shape or bringing definition to who God is. Because God's a spirit. He doesn't have spatial boundaries. And he longs for us to worship him rightly. Now here's God's grace to us. Last point. And here's where all this is culminating. Last point. Jesus is the only physical object of our worship. God in his grace has given us an object. He's given us someone with spatial boundaries. He has given us someone that we can handle, touch, see, and taste. And he did it in the first century with the incarnation. Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God who has become flesh. And there is only one true physical expression of the glory of God, and that's Jesus and we know that we don't need to make images because the object of our worship is Jesus. We know that we don't need images or a representation of them to feel close to God because Jesus brings us close to God. He is our mediator. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God has become a man. Colossians 1.19, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature. You see that radiance there, idea, that, that idea of excellence, beauty, glory. God in his love and in his grace has sent us an image, the image of the invisible God. So true worship and right worship and a fulfillment and obedience of the second command is to have Jesus as the only object of our worship. To have Jesus at the center of our worship. To have Jesus as the only person who can bring us into the presence of God and the only person who is at the center of our worship. True worship, right worship. When we talk about worship, the right God rightly, that has Jesus at the center. It has Jesus at the center. And this is why we get into all the the relic and statue and objects and paintings and anything else that's man-made. And this, this passage brings us to that point. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? We don't do that because there's only one way to God and one object of our worship, and that is Jesus. So whenever we think that anybody other than Jesus is going to usher us into the presence of God and reconcile us to God and that we worship God through anything other than Jesus is idolatry. Even if you think that you really worship God today because, man, I really like those songs and the way they played them. And you think that just merely a genre of music or a way a song is arranged brought you close to God. I'm not saying that didn't happen for you. I'm just saying be careful that you don't attribute the work of Jesus who brings us and reconciles us to God to some order of a song. And we don't have, we don't have stained glass and we don't have relics and we don't have objects of worship that we think that we're worshiping them or that those things are bringing us closer to God that God's coming to us in those things or that we're going to God in those things because Jesus is what God has given us as the object of our worship, as the way to worship God. And some of these things, like some of these icons and some of these paintings, and they're all good kind of in and of themselves, maybe how they started, but somewhere along the line, we began to attribute and kind of worship them in a way that they were never intended to. So for instance, stained glass. Stained glass, it had a good beginning. Stained glass, in essence, was the first video screen of the church, right? Bringing the truth of God into an image where we can train uneducated and common people in the truths about who God is. And somewhere along the line, it got to the point that we need stained glass so that I can feel close to God. Stained glass needs to be in the church so that God's presence and imminence can come to me so that he can be close and near to me. No, Jesus does that. Jesus does that. A song doesn't do that. A genre of music doesn't do that. Stained glass doesn't do that. A candle doesn't do that. And don't tell me that this is not a relevant topic for us as we stand six miles south of a 34-foot statue of Mary in our culture. And that's not to be a dig at any particular people or a branch of Christianity, only to say that our hearts can quickly be prone to wander from God and into images. And we need to see that Jesus is the object of our worship. And part of that struggle, friends, right, is that God's transcendent, God's big, almost kind of abstract, like, man, it's hard for me to get my hand around that. And things that are here and tangible, we can, we can see them. They're, they're, they're up close. And we long for God to be close and imminent, right? Transcendence is how big God is. Imminence has to do with how close God is. But what we need to see is in Jesus, both God's transcendence and imminence is in one person. God is transcendent and big. Jesus is. He is God and he is imminent with us. Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, we see the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. And the same, uh, the same men that walked with him and talked with him and heard him. Remember the beginning of 1 John? That which we've seen, touched, handled, heard, right? We've touched him, we've felt him, we've, we've been around him. This God, this Jesus, we proclaim to you so that you can have fellowship with us and fellowship with God. Jesus came in the flesh, the true object of our worship. We worship the right God rightly when Jesus is at the center, when he and he alone is the only means to God, the only way that God's transcendence and imminence, that we're brought to him and God is brought to us, Jesus, that's it. So I would encourage you, if you have anything 
that you're trusting in or kind of holding on to, this means by which you might go to God or God comes to you. And that's not Christ. That's not the risen Christ. I would encourage you to abandon that. Abandon that and keep Christ at the center. Keep Christ at the center. So what does this mean for us? We don't see Christ today. He's risen. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's not with us. Jesus said, I need to go. Because when I go, the Spirit's going to come. The Helper is going to come. What does that mean for us today, those who can't see Jesus? And this is where Peter's words are so helpful to us. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you've not seen him, though you have not seen him. Peter writes to a people, Peter saw him, but he writes to a people that have not seen Christ, but have believed in him through the testimony of an eyewitness through Peter. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Guys, we need to come to the point in our lives where we see that literally Jesus is the best. He is the best. He is the most glorious. He is the most weighty. He is the most excellent. He is the most beautiful. And that he is better than anything this world can offer. He is a God above gods. He is a king above all kings. He is a savior above all functional pseudo-saviors in this world. And we need to see that Jesus is amazing. Because in seeing Jesus' beauty and in seeing his power, all these other gods will be exposed for the false gods that they are. And in worshiping and loving Christ and receiving from him this steadfast love that he speaks of a little bit later on after that second commandment, we come to see that Jesus is awesome and the only one worth giving our lives to. You know, this is the whole point leading up to um, John's encouragement for us to keep ourselves from idols. This all culminates here. Look at what John said. 1 John 5.20 is where I'm at. And we know that the Son of God has come. We know that transcendent God in eternity past has come. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is close to us. He has come. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. He's come and revealed to us. He has showed us who he is so that we might be able to distinguish the truth out of the lie in this world. So that we might see the true God in a world full of false gods. He has come so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. That's that relationship that God speaks of, right, in Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God. We're in a relationship with Christ. He is Christ, the true God and eternal life. He is the true life. He's the true joy. He's the true happiness. He's the true peace. He's the true identity. He's the true acceptance. He's the true way to God. Anything that you are looking to in a created thing, Jesus is that infinitely and more better. And then what does he say? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God has given us his son. Bow down and serve him. Put no other gods before him. And come to see that Jesus has acted in history to love lawbreakers and idolaters and has loved us in his grace and went to the cross in our place for our sins, sin which was your responsibility, your sin which was your responsibility, my sin which was my responsibility. Jesus takes upon himself the responsibility of our sin and suffers and dies alone to bring us into a relationship where God is our God, where his people he's our God, where he forgives us of our sins, where he will never leave us and never forsake us. And he is calling us to know that he is better and to worship him in fidelity because he loves us and desires our freedom, not our slavery. That's why God says, have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols and don't bow down to them and serve them because I am better. And if you've never done that, and this is the first time you've heard the story of Christianity told that way, you can come to know this Jesus right now. And you don't even need to walk an aisle. I'm not going to have anybody close their heads and raise their hands and any of that junk. I'm saying you do that right now, right where you sit. You say, Jesus, you are the true God in eternal life. I've been chasing after idols my whole entire life. I want to believe in you right now. 
you come and experience this eternal life and join us. Join us who have known that and are struggling to grow by God's grace, who are fighting idols in our lives, who are repenting day in and day out. God, again, once again, I've given my heart and my life over to something that's not real. I believe the lie and I've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Forgive me once again. Remind me again that Jesus is good, right? God, you're awesome. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for, for reaching out to us and calling us and, 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 and luring us to yourself and showing us that you're a good God and a loving God. I pray that you give us strength to really discover, to discover really a little bit what's at the heart, at the core of our hearts, what we're truly trusting in. God, I pray that you would bring us into new seasons of freedom that you would expose these false gods and false idols in our lives, and that you'd come and, and give us a mind of understanding to see that you're better. I pray that 2014 would be for some of my friends here in this room a season of worship, a season of joy, for they have discovered the beauty of Christ in ways they've never have before. God, I pray that out of this, out of this talk and your spirit at work, that we would baptize some, who have come to discover that truth, that Jesus is better, and they've been given their lives as pseudo-gods who crush them and don't seek their freedom but seek their bondage. Help us to know you. Help us to keep ourselves from idols. In Jesus' name, amen.